0: If you turn to your Bible and we read together a portion that will be our consideration for the next few days, few weeks. Judges chapter eight and verse twenty two only through verse twenty seven. Judges eight twenty two through twenty seven. Then the men of Israel said unto Gideon, Rule thou over us, both thou and thy son, and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said unto them, I will not rule over you. Neither shall my son rule over you. The Lord shall rule over you. And Gideon said unto them, I would desire a request of you that you would give me every man the earrings of his prey, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, We will willingly give them. And they spread a garment, and did cast therein every man the earrings of his prey. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was a thousand and seven hundred shekels of gold. Beside ornaments, and collars, and purple raiment, that was on the kings of Midian and beside the chains that were about their camel's necks. And Gideon made an ephod thereof and put it in his city, even in Oprah. And all Israel went thither, a whoring after it. Which thing became a snare unto Gideon and to his house, turn with me, please, and stand with me again, please. We sing together in number three hundred and thirty-two. Let earth with every island sea rejoice the Savior reigns. His word like fire prepares His way and mountains melt to plains. His presence sinks the proudest hills. And makes the valleys rise. The humble soul enjoys his smiles. The haughty sinner dies. Adoring angels at his birth. Made our Redeemer known. Thus shall he come. To judge the earth and angels guard his throne. His foes shall tremble at his sight and hills and seas retire. His children take their upward flight and leave the world on fire. The seeds of joy and glory sown for saints in darkness here shall rise and spring in worlds unknown and a rich harvest bear. Thank you. Be seated. <clears throat> We returned this morning to our studies together in the eighth chapter of the record of Israel's judges. In order to set the whole scene before your mind in one single statement. I give it to you in the four short words of my sermon title. The war is over. Gideon has been called away back there in chapter 6. Out of a wine press, threshing the wheat. By the angel from under the tree that watched him there. He has followed that angel. Sometimes with fear, but followed nevertheless. Followed and obeyed. Built altars, rendered sacrifices which were accepted. He has gone forth and fought the battles of the Lord by faith. He has defeated the Midianite hordes in the field of battle and in fields of spiritual strength and might. Gideon has seen much and Israel has watched as he took that little band whom God chose and defeated Israel's terrible enemies. But now the war is over. You'll remember I'm sure those of you here Americans your generation you've seen pictures, I've seen pictures and movie reels. You remember the great rejoicing in the streets at the conclusion of World War II when the announcement was made that victory was won and war was over. We've all seen the little clips of ticker tape parades and Dancing in the streets, the joy. Armistice, Armistice, World War I, signing of the peace. Great rejoicing because war was over. But when war is over, then men's minds, after the initial rejoicing and Times of exhilaration because of that, men's minds turn to the future. Now what? But now, in our text this morning, the smoke of battle has cleared. God's enemies lay rotting in the dirt of Israel's landscape. Gideon has even settled his personal accounts with false and unfaithful brethren. A new day has dawned and a new era has begun. Forty years of peace lay ahead of them. We find that in verse 28 that we didn't read this morning. Forty years of peace lay ahead of them. A new day has dawned. And so it is that we find in the wording of verse 22, then. Verse 22 begins with that word, then. The war's over. Then it is, in verse 22 tells us. Then it is, just then. The men of Israel came to Gideon with these words. Rule thou over us. Both thou and thy son and thy son's son also. For thou hast delivered us from the hand of Midian. The men of Israel come with this request. One commentator, Matthew Henry to be precise, said that it was a reasonable and even plausible request. That is, it was well within the natural order of the ways of men. They wanted to honor so great a figure, and they rightly trusted his leadership for their future. And so, Matthew Henry at least would make the case that this was not an unseemly thing for them to do. It was reasonable. Yes, even plausible. But we know that they were keenly influenced in this matter by their neighbors <laughs> Verse eighteen Then said he to Zeb and Thalman, what manner of men were they whom ye slew at Tabor? And they said As thou art, so were they each one resembled the children of a king This was the order of the world around them. This was the influence of all of their neighbors to have a king. Oh, could I just give you by way of a simple lesson this morning? That despite our best intentions, how powerful is the influence of the world around us? How powerful Every day is the influence of the world around us. All of Israel had been sold with this same notion that their neighbors had. Be a king. Come and be our king. But our God had already declared his purpose. To keep his people unspotted from the world. Not in the Old Testament. Those words are found in James 1 and verse 27. But it was clear in all that Old Testament law and instruction. God had intended to keep his people unspotted from the world. He had made his designs clear had he not. Way back yonder. When first he covenanted. With Abraham, listen to the words. You remember it? Genesis chapter 12 and verse 1. Listen how the Lord covenants himself with Israel. Genesis 12 and verse 1. Now the Lord had said unto Abraham, Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house, under land, I will show thee and I'll make of thee a great nation. I'll bless thee and make thy name great. Thou shalt be a blessing and I'll bless them that bless thee and curse him that curses thee and in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed from that very original covenant from that very original taking up of Abram and this people for himself he said get thee up get out from among them get up and get out That would be a good sermon title for a meeting, would it not? Get up and get out! (laughs) Get up and get out from among them. Oh, but now, these men of Israel, verse 22, have succumbed to the influences among whom they have dwelt for so long and now they want a king. And just as a sidelight, if I may just say it, that phrase keeps haunting me in verse 22. The men of Israel, the men of Israel did this. When men depart From the wisdom of God and the ways of God. They little think. They drag along with them their wives and their children. The women and the children suffer. Because of the actions of the men. The men of Israel came to Gideon. Moses by the illumination of God's Holy Spirit had anticipated that this day would come when Israel would want an earthly king. And having anticipated it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Moses had even laid down laws concerning it. Deuteronomy chapter 17 records for us Those laws which our God anticipated that his people would need. Deuteronomy chapter 17 and verse 14. When thou art come into the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee, and shalt possess it, and shalt dwell therein, and shalt say, I will set a king over me. like as all the nations that are about me, our God anticipated that the influence of their neighbors would bring this to pass. And so he says to them, when you come to that land and you're there and you're dwelling in it and you're saved, you're going to say, I'm going to set me a king over me like all the nations around us have. Then verse 15, thou shalt... In any wise set him over thee, whom the Lord thy God shall choose. One from among thy brethren shalt thou set king over thee. Thou mayest not set a stranger over thee, which is not thy brother, but he shall not multiply horses to himself, nor cause the people to return to Egypt, to the end that he should multiply horses. For as much as the Lord hath said unto you, ye shall henceforth return no more that way. Neither shall he multiply wives to himself, that his heart turn not away, neither shall he greatly multiply to himself silver and gold. And it shall be when he sitteth upon the throne of his kingdom, that he shall write him a copy of this law in a book, out of which all that out of which that out of that which is before the priests and the Levites. So our God begins to detail the instruction. You're going to want a king. And when that day comes, I'm instructing you now. I'll choose the king. You'll not choose the king. I'll choose the king. And here's how he shall reign. He'll not reign as one that grabs and gobbles and hoards gold and silver and horses and powers and all those things. But here's what he shall do if he's going to reign over you? He needs to write out a copy of this law and read it to you. Our God had anticipated this day would come in Judges chapter 8. But says Fawcett in his commentary, this, this giving a king to Israel, like so many other things, was permitted in condescension, these are Fawcett's words, it was permitted in condescension to Israel's infirmity. But it was not his highest ideal for them. Oh, Gideon has given us God's ideal. The Lord shall reign over you. But our God, recognizing the weakness of his people, and in their weakness and stupidity, he allows that they should conduct themselves in a certain way. Can I just give you another quick lesson from that? God's condescensions. To Israel's weaknesses. Ought never become the standard. Of license for holiness. God's condescension. On account of the weaknesses. Of men. Israel. Ought never become the standards of license. For holiness. Was this not the very issue? Was this not the very issue that our Lord raised to those Pharisees in his own day? Matthew chapter 19 verse 1. It came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings, he departed from Galilee and came into the coast of Judea beyond Jordan and great multitudes followed him and he healed them there. And the Pharisees, verse 3, also came unto him, tempting him, saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for ever cause? Verse 4, And he answered and said unto them, Have ye not read that he which made them at the beginning made the male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore they are no more twain but one flesh. Verse 6. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. And what do they do? They refer back to an institution that responded to the weakness of Israel. And they said unto him, verse 7, Why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? Verse 8, He saith unto them, Moses, because of the hardness of your heart, suffered you to put away your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. I repeat my lesson to you. God's condescensions to Israel's weaknesses have never become the standard of license for holiness. God's condescension to their weakness. Give us a king, he anticipated that day would come. So these men of Israel, in their carnal designs, failed utterly to see God's hands. And so they set out to set up Gideon. As their king, they failed utterly. Look at the words at the end of verse 22 For thou hast delivered us! They failed utterly to see the hand of God. And so they said, Give us a king. Be our king. Be our king. Adersheim put it in these words. He said the deliverance of Israel was now complete. It had been wrought most unexpectedly and by apparently quite inadequate means. In the circumstances it was natural that in measure as the people failed to recognize the direct agency of Jehovah They should exalt Gideon as the great national hero. Accordingly, they now offer him the hereditary rule over at least the northern tribes. Gideon had spiritual discernment and strength sufficient to resist this temptation. He knew that he had only been called to a temporary work and that rule which they wished could not be made hereditary. Each judge must be specifically called and qualified by the influence of the Holy Spirit. Besides, the latter was not, as since the ascension of our blessed Savior, he was not a permanent indwelling of the Holy Spirit as a person, but consisted in certain effects produced by his agency. The proposal of Israel could therefore only arise, here's the words I want you to hear, This proposal of Israel could only arise from a carnal misunderstanding of the work of God. A carnal misunderstanding indeed. Oh, but it was never by his permission that they would be like the world. It was never by God's permission that they be like the world. The prophet declared it boldly in Ezekiel chapter 20 and verse 31. For when ye offer your gifts, when ye make your sons to pass through the fire, ye pollute yourselves with all your idols even unto this day. And shall I be inquired of by you, O house of Israel, I will not be inquired of by you. That which cometh into your mind shall not be at all that ye say. We will be as the heathen, as the families of the countries, to serve wood and stone. As I live, saith the Lord, God surely with a mighty hand, and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out, will I rule over you. I will rule over you. I will rule over you. If I must do it by pouring out my fire of my vengeance upon you, verse 34, I will bring you out from the people, and I'll gather you out of the countries wherein you're scattered with a mighty hand and with a stretched out arm, and with fury poured out, I will bring you into the wilderness of the people, and there will I plead with you face to face. I will rule over you. Our God had made it abundantly clear. Abundantly clear. Only he will be the king. But there was a question that haunted me constantly as I studied in this portion of the scriptures. There was a question that haunted me constantly. Why? Why must they have an earthly king? Why did they feel they must have an earthly king? And The answer is very simple. Because thus it always is with the unregenerate man. Yes, even with, if I may borrow a British term, churchmen. Thus it always is with unregenerate men, even if they be unregenerate churchmen. Even being those who held the name of God their Lord, as Israel did, this is the supreme problem. Even these will have anyone rule over them but Christ. Anyone but the Lord. The question haunted my mind why must they have an earthly king? Because they will not have Jehovah reign over them. Anything but Christ. Oh look at that sorrowful story again. From the very dawning of our existence. That very familiar story and oh please don't let familiarity breed contempt in this passage of Scripture. Look at it again. The serpent comes, Genesis 3, more subtle than any beast. The woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the garden, and we may eat of all of this, but we will not, cannot eat of the one in the midst of the garden. God said, "You shall not eat of it neither shall you touch it, lest you die. The serpent said unto them, Ye shall not surely die, for God doth know that in the day ye thereof, then your eyes will be opened and ye shall be in God's knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and did eat and gave her husband her with her and He did eat. What's the problem? They don't want God to be king over them. This is and ever has been the problem with human race. Anything but God. Anybody but Christ. Oh, look again at the testimony of men's hearts. The testimony of men's hearts that's so plain, so plain in this text. Luke chapter 19 and verse 12. Listen how plain it is in this text. He said, therefore, verse 12, a certain nobleman went into a far country to see for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens. Oh, there's a message for you, preachers. His citizens. These were his citizens. They weren't strangers, foreigners. These were his citizens. His citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man reign over us. Who's preaching that message? Oh, the Lord himself. Why? He's giving us the instruction. His own citizens, at least nominally, by name, they're his citizens. They'll have anybody lower, but not him. Oh, look again. Even in the hours of his passion on the earth, Even in the hours of his passion on the earth, they declare their rejection of his rule. John chapter 19 and verse 13. When Pilate therefore heard that saying, he brought Jesus forth and sat down in the judgment seat in a place that's called the pavement, but in the Hebrew, Gabbatha. And it was the superscription of the Passover. uh, Sorry, it was the preparation of the Passover in about the sixth hour and he said unto the Jews behold your king listen to them now they cried out away with him away with him crucify him Pilate said to them shall I crucify your king and the chief priests answered we have no king but Caesar Anybody but God, anybody but Christ will not have his kingship over us. Oh, I'm trying to answer for you the question I answered for me. Why did they even ask for a king? Why? Must they even have an earthly man? Oh, here's the answer. Because of the depravity of man's heart, he'd have anybody rule over him rather than God. Anybody but God. No king but Caesar, they said. Way back here in Judges chapter 8, Israel said, No king but Gideon. Not Jehovah. Gideon. No king but Gideon notwithstanding his strong remonstrance against them in verse 23 when he said the Lord shall rule over you oh the depth the depth of the soul's aversion to God's word could I just pause here though And just leave our text briefly where it sits. And refresh our hearts this morning with the glad news for you. He will reign over his own. (laughs) He will rule over his own. And his reign is not only the authority of a sovereign. But it is the supplications of a priest. Oh, can I just share this with you? He will reign over his people, and his reign is not just the authority of a sovereign. It is the supplications of a priest. Oh. Whoa, listen. Listen to the prophet now. In Zechariah. Zechariah chapter 6. Verse 11. Then take silver and gold and make crowns and set them upon the head of Joshua, the son of Joseph Deck, the high priest, and speak unto him, say, Listen now. Speak unto him. Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, Behold, the man whose name is the branch. (laughs) Hallelujah. The man whose name is the branch. And he shall grow up out of his place, and he shall build. The temple of the Lord. Even he shall build the temple of the Lord. And he shall bear the glory. And shall sit and rule upon his throne. And listen to who he is. He shall be a priest upon his throne. Do you see it? A priest. Who sits on a throne? A king. Oh yes. But this king is a priest. A priest. On his throne. And the counsel of peace. Shall be between them both. Oh hallelujah. My wife sometimes. Admonishes me not to read so much. <laughs> and I want to heed that admonition. But you're going to have to forgive me this morning. And indulge me. Because several months ago. I came across dear old Palmer. Dear old B.M. Palmer, took up that text in Zechariah. And I wanted to share with you this morning what he said. If I could just lift your spirits this morning into the third heaven, as it were, by letting you hear this preacher and what he said about this verse. He said, in the coronation of this priest king, we have the germinant fulfillment. Of all the promises of grace to us. And the application of the whole scheme. In our personal salvation. (laughs) After satisfaction has been made to the law. According to the exactions of its strict justice. After satisfaction has been made to the law. After the priestly advocate has filled His plea of intercession in the chancery above. (laughs) I love that. After the judicial decree has been rendered by the court, which secures the sinner's title to eternal life, the whole process fails of any practical benefit if there be no provision to carry this decree into effect. It sleeps inoperative upon the record. I love those words. Oh, he's accomplished. He's satisfied everything. Yes. But it just sits sleeping on the record. (laughs) Inoperative upon the record. If it be not taken up and issued in the sinner's actual experience. (laughs) the father whose office it is in these transactions to represent the majesty of the law delivers the sentence of judicial acquittal into the hands of the advocate who has sued it out but he as the surety who stands pledged to present these redeemed sinners before the Father without spot or wrinkle, he must assume another function pertaining to another office before this mighty trust can be discharged. Just here comes in the kingship of the Redeemer. Hallelujah. With the executive prerogatives. The priest who by sacrifices has purchased our pardon and by intercession has confirmed the legal title is now called with the mediatorial authority as a king to dispense the same hallelujah. The priest is the king and the king is the priest. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, through His Word and by His Spirit, He conveys it to the sinner, seals it upon his conscience, fills him with the joy of full acceptance with God. Precious as a condemned sin, a condemned criminal whose pardon has been issued by the chief magistrate, it's neither liable by liberated from itself nor rejoices in the sense of security until the certified warrant arrives which knocks off his chains and restores him to society. And thus must the Redeemer be a priest to recover the life which the sinner had forfeited to justice and he must be a king in order to convey and apply it and in the union of both that cause is peace. And finds its consummation. Hallelujah. The priest. He will reign over his people. He will reign over his people. (laughs) Oh, but this king. He's a priest. He combines the office of kingship and priesthood. Palmer goes on and says. How shall this complex relation of personal responsibility of the federal obedience be adjusted? Well, he says the answer is found in the consolidated offices of a priest king. The priest offers the sacrifice to God which takes away the sins of the world. As the obedience even unto death was rendered for us, the Father accepts it as ours. And no use can be made of it other than to apply it in the law as the grounds for our justification. Upon this basis a legal title is obtained not only to freedom but to full acceptance with God. The priest's separate work is done. And now gathering up the mediatorial robes. Gathering up his mediatorial robes. He ascends the throne upon which he sits sovereign and ruler. Hallelujah. Can you get that picture in your mind? Gathers up the mediatorial robes and climbs the steps to sit as sovereign. <laughs> oh hallelujah. The pre separate work is done. Oh between the mitre and the crown. He places the council of peace to be carried into effect under the seal of that royalty which dispenses the grace which the priesthood has purchased. <laughs> the law which the priest has magnified and made honorable forever, the king now administers from his throne. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Oh, Palmer says one more. He said the altar is the stepping stone to the throne. Oh, that sums it all up, doesn't it? Isn't that beautiful? The altar is the stepping stone to the throne. The sacrifice, sacrifice upon the one is the more awful When the solemnity of the priest is added to the authority of the king. The power wielded from the other is more commanding. When the majesty of the king is added to the sanctity of the priest. (laughs) Oh the crown imparts its splendor to the mitre. The mitre imparts its holiness to the crown. The corsair blends with the scepter. Combining pastoral care with imperial rule. And one, the one is a symbol of authority over the conscience. The other is dominion over the will. The priest comes with the traces of suffering. The king comes with the emblems of triumph. Sympathy breathes in the prayers of the priest. He commands as a king. The voice of the one opens with benediction. And that of the other pronounces the reward. The priest symbolizes worship. The king symbolizes obedience. And in their union, worship becomes obedience. And obedience becomes worship. Hallelujah. Pardon is purchased by the priest. Amnesty is declared by the king. Righteousness is wrought by the one. And it gives as a wedding garment to the other. In the priest he became a holy priesthood offering spiritual sacrifices accepted to God by Christ Jesus. But in the king he becomes the king with our God sitting upon the throne and judging the angels. Each office is glorified by the other and the value of both is enhanced by their union. In the priest king all is found that blood can purchase and power can bestow. Oh, I'll leave you with that. I'll leave you with that. In this priest-king, all is found that blood can purchase and power can bestow. Hallelujah. <laughs> A priest-king. But these, in verse 22, didn't want Jehovah to be their king. They wanted Gideon to be their king. Well, did the hymn writer write Thomas Kelly sometime in the mid-1800s said, Come ye saints, unite your praises with the angels round his throne. Soon we hope our Lord will raise us to the place where he is gone. Meet it is that we should sing glory, glory to our King. Sing how Jesus came from heaven, how he bore the cross below, how all power to him is given, how he reigns in glory now. It is great and endless thing. Oh, it's sweet to sing of him. King of glory, reign forever. Thine and everlasting crown, nothing from thy love shall sever. Those whom thou hast made thine own happy objects of thy grace, destined to behold thy face. King of glory, reign forever. But these men of Israel didn't want him. They said, Gideon, you rule over us and your son and his son. Oh, what an offer. What an offer. But what did Gideon say? God willing, next week we shall see. Turn with me if you will, please, and stand with me. Sing number 325. Rejoice, the Lord is King. Adore your God and King, adore. Rejoice the Lord is King Your God and King adore Mortals give thanks and sing And triumph evermore Lift up the heart Lift up the voice Rejoice aloud Ye saints rejoice His kingdom cannot fail He rules o'er earth and heaven The keys of death and hell are to the Savior give. Lift up the heart. Lift up the voice. Rejoice aloud, oh ye saints, rejoice. He every foe shall quell. Shall all our sins destroy. And every bosom swell with pure seraphic joy. Lift up your heart, lift up your voice. Rejoice aloud, ye saints, rejoice. Rejoice in glorious hope. Jesus the judge shall come and take his servants up to their eternal home. We soon shall hear the archangel's voice, the trump of God shall sound rejoice. Thank mm-hmm.